You know, I noticed uh, I'm, I'm no business guy. You know, I'm a preacher, but I have been noticing this year that the uh, airline stocks have been going down. You know, Northwest has really been, if you look at the, you know, in the commercial appeal on the business page, you notice Northwest Airlines, one of those has been losing in their stock price, and Delta's talking about going bankrupt. I don't know, maybe they did already. And it's been a tough year for airlines. Then I saw this article in the paper. Maybe you saw it too in the commercial appeal last Friday. Fat passengers cost airlines. <laughs> the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that the extra weight put on by Americans in the 1990s, 10 pounds per person, causes the airlines to burn 350 million more gallons of fuel in 2000 at a cost of $275 million. This is a crisis. Man, fat passengers. I wondered what it was that was messing up the airlines. It's all the food you've been eating. Southwest, they say, has solved it. They, they require us fat people to take two seats, and that, that handles it. So if you call Southwest and they're asking you to take two seats, you know you need a diet real bad. Well, folks, let's look at Revelation chapter 3. And you, you always come for your business tip, and I gave you your business tip first thing in the morning. There you go. Lose weight. Now, by the way, Dan, I, I wasn't surprised that I'm teaching at the Amen Retreat. I was just excited. I mean, two great speakers, Rocky and Sandy. Man, this is thrilling. Let's see. We'll talk about uh, sex and uh, golf, and uh, we'll come up with some other things you'll really be interested in. We know it'll be a really, really great weekend. All right. Revelation chapter 3. Yeah, sex and golf. That's all a man ever needs. Yeah. Revelation chapter 3, we come to the sixth of seven churches. And up through Thanksgiving, we've been looking at these churches. After Thanksgiving, we get into the real hairy stuff in Revelation, uh, where you're going to have to really turn your brain on when we get to chapter 4. It gets a little hairy, but really exciting. But now we're studying these churches, and we, we remember in chapter 1, we had this grand vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we realized what what really the church needs is a grand vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our big problem is we don't know who we're dealing with. And Revelation chapter 1 reminds us who we're dealing with. And then in chapters 2 and 3, this one with whom we're dealing speaks to us. Seven churches, which really just symbolizes the entire church. Jesus Christ telling us what He thinks of the church, what He wants us to be doing, and the encouragement to do so. And every church is different. And we have many, many churches represented here. Every one of them is different. And it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to, for every one of us to get a letter from Jesus. But somewhere in these seven churches, or some combination of them, you'll, you'll get your letter. Because this is written to the whole church and his encouragement and challenge to us. And we come to one called Philadelphia. And uh, Philadelphia is inland in present-day Turkey. It's a small little town, not really very significant. Most people would even forget it. But Jesus doesn't forget it. And sometimes, you know, in your life you feel like it's lived off in the corner. Nobody really notices. Ah, Jesus notices. And he has something to say to them. And there are some things unusual about this letter that will be important for us today. Let's take a look at it. Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. 
See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, Uh, briefly let's look at the overall framework uh, that we're using for all of these churches We get the church name, Philadelphia. Christ's name, this is going to be significant. Christ is called the one who is holy and true and the one who holds the key of David. We'll look and see what that means in a few moments. Then he commends them. He notices their deeds. He notices that they're keeping Christ's words. He notices they've not denied Him even when they were tempted to and that they're enduring patiently their afflictions. And believe me, guys, God notices that in your life, all four of those things. And He takes delight in them, even when you think nobody notices. And then as far as the critique goes, here's the surprise. No critique. Isn't that interesting? I believe this is the only letter where you get no critique at all. Now, we saw one that gets no commendation before. This one gets no critique. Uh, This is a special church. Uh, Jesus seems to have a special place in His heart for them. And then the instruction is, hold on to what you got. And that's a very important principle in the Christian life. If you just hold on to what you've got, you, oftentimes you'll be doing very well. And then there's a warning that, first of all, he will humble the opponents. They're warned. And then, in a sense, he says, don't, don't give up. Hold on to what you've got so that nobody will take your crown away. So there's a sense in which we've all got a crown. If we're following Christ, don't let anybody take it away. There's a warning there. And then promise. The promises are that he will preserve us. He'll make us a pillar in the church. And he'll write a variety of names on us. That is, he'll own us, and we will identify with him. And that is to keep us safe. So you see there the general general outline of what's going to happen now in this church in Philadelphia. You can compare it to the other ones you've already noted. Now, the problem, it seems, that he's addressing here, and we'll pick this up as we go through, is that the Philadelphians had a tendency to be discouraged. They saw themselves as living in an insignificant town, maybe thinking they were in an insignificant church, probably thinking they were living an insignificant life. And Jesus is calling them out by name, letting them know that they're noticed, that they're important, and that they will be rewarded just like everybody else. And sometimes, you know, I mean, we're we're told that Memphis suffers from low (laughs) self-esteem. This is a great city. I moved here 10 years ago. And those of you who've been living here forever, you know, you don't know how cool a city Memphis really is. I was talking to someone in New York uh, some years ago, and they said, you know, everybody up here in Manhattan thinks Memphis is really cool. I said, really? <laughs> I said, I said you, you, so your friends think Memphis is cool? And he said, yeah. I said, have they ever been here? <laughs> he said, well, no. 
And I said, well, why do they think it's cool? And he said, it's got culture. Yeah, that's a good point. Memphis does have culture. We've got great culture, great legacy, great heritage. And uh, we have a lot of other great things in our city, but we do suffer from low self-esteem. And those of you who travel, if you're in business, sometimes you, you know, you, I'll hear you say, well, you know, this is no New York or this is no London. This is no Paris. Hey, this is a cool city. And uh, the most important thing about Memphis is that Jesus notices it. That's the most important thing about this city. And the most important thing about living here is that Jesus notices what you're doing when you live here. And when you get your mind set on Jesus Christ and what's really important in this life, it doesn't matter whether you live in London or Paris or New York or Memphis or Brownsville, uh, Jesus notices you and your little city and what's going on there. And these Philadelphians needed to know that because they had a tendency to write themselves off. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting to the point, I haven't been here quite long enough to be sick and tired of this, but I'm getting there of people in Memphis who, who you know, talk down their own city and think they live in an insignificant place. You don't. It's a very significant place. We do have culture. We've got a lot of other things too. So Jesus notices us. Now, I want us to notice three things. First of all, in verse 1, we're going to see how Christ presents Himself. And you notice that in each of His messages to the seven churches, He recalls something about Himself from Revelation chapter 1. Something from the grand vision of Jesus is used to identify who He is. And for example, in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 18, uh, John says that Jesus says, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ holds the keys to your life. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He holds the keys to other things. And, you know, if you really sat down and, and got honest with each other, uh, each of us would have something that we think is the key to life and the key to success and the key to happiness. And oftentimes it has to do with how well your business is doing. That has a lot to do. Some of you think that's the key. If my business would just really get roaring, I could fulfill that dream that I've got. Some of you who are students, you know, if I could just make straight A's and also have time for golf every day, you know, that would be, that, that'd be success. And some of you are saying, you know, if, if I could just have, a, you know, better life, you know, intimate life with my wife, that, that'd be better. Or, you know, if I could find the right woman to get married, there's the key to my success and my happiness. You could go all the way through the list. There have been some interesting studies done in the past decade on the issue of human happiness in America. And the bottom line of these studies is basically all the things that you think and I think will make us happy don't make us happy. Studies show that there is, there is no significant difference between those who have high income and those who have low income. A study showed there's no significant difference in happiness between those who have excellent health and those who are being wheeled around in a wheelchair. No difference. Now, there are some differences based on how your relationships are going. There's a difference on whether you have a purpose in your life or not. And primarily, there's a difference in those who are connected to God through Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, we fool ourselves all the time that we're going to find the key to life, key to happiness, key to success in one thing or another, especially in ourselves. We're the key, we say. No, we're not. There's one person who's got the key. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the key to your life. He's the key to your success. And if you're thinking clearly, He's the key to your happiness. And if you've got Him, it doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair, on your deathbed, whether you have good health, bad health, whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of it, it really doesn't matter. 
He's the one who matters. And Jesus presents himself to the Philadelphians saying, you know, all this stuff about whether you live in a big prosperous city or you're in, in this trade guild or the other one or you're a slave or you're free, you're male or female, married or single, he says, look, I am the one who holds the key, the key of David. I'm the one who holds the t- key of which really enters into the temple itself. And I'm the one who can give you access to the temple. Now, the reason I say this, if you'll look back and uh, hold your finger there, and those of you who know your way a little bit in the Bible, in the Old Testament, might be able to find Isaiah. I know Talo can't find it, but somebody help him out, will you? Uh, Isaiah 22. Uh, here's where you get this reference to the key of David. And this is a little complicated, but the Lord is giving a prophecy concerning His own people in Jerusalem. And in uh, Revel, uh, rather Isaiah 22 Verse 14, the Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, of the, uh, the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Verse 15, this is chapter 22, verse 15. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace, what are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. How'd you like that for a prophecy about yourself? He'll roll you up into a ball and throw you out in another country. He will roll you up tightly uh, like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die and there your splendid chariots will remain you disgrace, uh, you disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you'll be ousted from your position. So here's Shebna, uh, Shebna, who is an attendant in the palace and in the temple and he's making a grave for himself. That is, he's making a very prominent burial place for himself, taking advantage of his office. And the Lord is saying, you out of here. Now look at verse 20. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. So he's saying to Shebna, I'm going to take what you got and I'm going to give it to Eliakim. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And look at verse 22. Here's the key. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts... No one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. His offspring and offshoots, all his lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. So he's saying, Shebna, you're taking advantage of your place in the palace. I'm going to give the key to Eliakim, the key of David, that is the key to the palace, because David owns the palace. Now, here's what Jesus Christ is saying that the Father has given me the key to His palace. And I, I, what I open, no one can shut. What I shut, no one can open because I am the keeper of the house. So that's the way Jesus is presenting Himself to Philadelphia. He's saying, don't think there's any other way. Don't think you're going to dream up some scheme to, to get the pleasure of my Father without me. He gave me the key. You ain't getting in without me. And isn't this reminiscent of several places in the Scriptures where we're clearly taught about Jesus Christ being the unique and only way 
to come to the Father. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When Peter was preaching, he says, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want access to the Father, which means you have access to all the delights in the universe, there's one way to get there, through the one who's got the key. That's the way Jesus is presenting Himself. And He calls Himself holy and true. He holds the key of David. What He opens, no one can shut. Now, there are two doors that we believe He's making reference to. The first is the door to your destiny. That is obviously heaven itself. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. No one will go to heaven apart from Him. So, through faith in Jesus Christ, your destiny is secured. And you know, guys, if you know what your destiny is, you can endure a lot. If, if you're, in a, a, you're at sea on a cruise, but you're going somewhere that is really fabulous, there may be a few little rock, rocking and rolling, a few storms along the sea, but if you know where you're going and you're excited to get there, then you can endure it. Uh, your, your plane ride may be a little bumpy, but if you're going to see something you're really excited about, it's worth it, isn't it? Uh, so the... the Pilgrimage is justified by the destination you're going to. And Jesus is telling us that He has our destiny in His hands. And the second door is the door to your service. And in some senses, I think that John Stott especially thinks at this point, this is what Jesus is primarily talking about. That He's opening a door for us to heaven, but also opening a door to those around us. And uh, the reason for this, uh, for this scholarly uh, opinion is because when you look at what else is being said in this letter, it seems that Jesus is commending them for walking through the door of service that He has given them. And I think this is very important for us as it was for the Apostle Paul. If you'll leave your finger there again in Revelation 3, turn over to 1 Corinthians 16 and let's look at just a couple of places where the Apostle Paul speaks of this in his own life. In 1 Corinthians 16, he is talking to the Corinthians about his ministry. And he says to them in verse 5, 16, 5, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So the apostle says, look, I'd like to be with you. I like you guys. I'd like to spend some time with you. Furthermore, you all have been supportive of my ministry. When I come there, I know you'll support me. That's great. But I've got to stay in Ephesus because there's an opportunity that has, has presented itself. A door has been opened. Turn on over another page to 2 Corinthians and look at chapter 2. And he's saying to the Corinthians in verse 12, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So the Lord he uses that language again that the Lord had opened a door for him. Turn over a few more pages to Colossians. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, you may remember this request. He says, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So, the, the, the key here, back to Revelation 3 now, is that the Lord is the one who opens the doors for our opportunities for ministry. He opens the door to heaven for us, and He opens the door to others that they may have the door of heaven open for them. And Christ is the one who do, does this. He holds the keys to our life and to our mission out there in the world. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul says, pray for these doors to be opened. Uh, one man once said it this way, unless a man's faith saves him out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save him out of, heaven, out of hell into heaven. Let me say it again. Unless a man's faith saves him out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save him out of hell into heaven. So these two things go together. That we're saved from selfishness to service. Just as we're saved from hell into heaven. They go together. And you, that's what you see here in this text. Now, I'd like for us to think about this for just a moment. If Christ is the door to your destiny, you have to remember that He is holy and true. What does that mean? He is holy and true. So those who are going to take that open door into heaven are going to be those who are seeking holiness and seeking truth. Say, preacher, I don't know, but you just make me feel a little uncomfortable with that. Well, I know we probably all do. There's a man who was a Baptist and he owned a cow and he took the cow down to market to sell it. And he went down there and found a man who really wanted to buy his cow for a really good price. So he said, well, I'll sell him to you. And the other man said, well, uh, that's great. He said, I don't have any money with me now, but you can, you can be assured that I'll pay you because I'm a Presbyterian elder. So that sounded impressive. The guy gave him the cow and took an IOU and he went home. And his wife said, what you been doing? He said, well, let me ask you a question first, he said to his wife. He said, what is a Presbyterian elder? She said, well, it's kind of like a Baptist deacon. He said, honey, I just lost a cow. <laughs> That's true. If someone, you know, you know in business, if they really tell you, hey, man, I'm a Christian, you know you're in trouble. Uh and this is the hypocrisy that is absolutely pervasive in the church. We run into it all the time. But Jesus Christ says, I am holy and true, and I'll hold the keys. So, if you want Him to unlock the door for you, there must be an aspiration to holiness. As the writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. And so it is with truthfulness. And we hear all kinds of things. People telling us lies, misrepresenting things all the time. We, you know, we need to think about this. The one who is holding the keys wants us to be like him, holy and true. But I want you to notice how gracious the Lord is. And he doesn't just leave us where we are. And he gives us second chances, third chances, fourth chances. Uh, we, uh, Allison and I have a, have a couple friend, uh, Larry and Sharon Schof. And years ago when their daughter was seven years old, she was in the first grade. And a kid, uh, a boy sitting right across from her, handed her a note. And, uh, and the note said, will you be my girlfriend? And Jamie Beth 
took the note and passed it back, and this is what it said. It said, if you want to be my boyfriend, you're going to have to clean up your act. <laughs> P.S. Check with me again on Friday. <laughs> Unfortunately for some of your wives, that's the way they treated you, and look at the mess they got themselves into. But you know, if Jamie Beth is gracious enough to give you another chance on Friday, you think about the Lord Jesus Christ who's more gracious than she is. And so you say, I haven't been holy and I haven't been truthful. Well, let me tell you, he's got the keys right now. He's just saying, do you, do you want a holy and truthful life? Do you want me? Because that's what I am. I'm holy and true. And if you're going to be married to me, if you're going to be in intimate union with me, that's what my life is. If you want my life to be lived through your life, that's what my life is. It's holy, it's morally pure, and it's truthful. So that's a basic choice anyone has to make. And I tell you, folks don't make that choice because they don't want holiness and they don't want truth. can't tell you how many times I've, I've asked guys who, who are not Christians, like some of you in this room who haven't yet made up your mind whether you're going to receive Christ or not. And I just simply ask them this question. How would your life change if you became a Christian? And when you think about that question, what it usually dredges up is what you don't want to change and the reason you don't want to become a Christian. I find most guys, it's really not a problem with the truth of the gospel. Hey, look, uh, the evidences behind the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the integrity of this Bible are enormous. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. It takes a little time to study and ask some intelligent questions. And then you start getting answers. And then you start realizing you're trapped. And the reason you don't want to receive Christ is not because you don't have enough answers. I know this from personal experience. It's because you don't want to change. And you're afraid if you become a Christian, you're going to become like one of those dudes in your, your office that really geeks you out. That's what you're afraid of. You don't want holiness and you don't want truth. That's the reason people, at least in this society, who have heard the gospel many times, don't receive Christ. So Jesus Christ is standing over you he holds the key to your happiness, to your destiny, and He's saying, I'm holy and I'm true. Come on and be one with me. Then He holds the, the keys to the doors of your service. And I just want to say uh, that it, it's, it's a tragedy when you think about a city like ours with so many people who know Christ, who have so many resources of their time and their energy and their possessions, and we still find all these enormous problems in our city. And I think one reason that we do is that men like ourselves who know better are not simply asking Jesus, what doors have you unlocked for service in this city and in this world? There are all kinds of doors unlocked. Example, we've got a tremendous crisis with the educational system in our city. But there are schools that would be happy to have mentors and teachers, someone who would take an interest in a young guy and teach him how to add and how to subtract and how to write and how to read. There are amazing open doors and opportunities. There, there are problems with race relations in this city. There are tremendous opportunities to build friendships. If you're simply praying, Lord, would you open the door? Would you enable me to build friendships? Would you enable me to partner with someone in business whose cause I can help advance, who may not have had the same background that I did, who didn't have a father who understood capitalism and, and how to make investments and how to delegate and how to build up an organization? And maybe I can help partner with somebody and help them with that. There are tremendous opportunities in your church to teach. You say, well, I've never been asked to teach. You've never really asked about the nursery lately. I can tell you in our church, you haven't asked about the nursery. 
Have you asked about the four-year-olds and the five-year-olds? If you're an adult teacher, fine. Go teach adults. If they want you to teach and you're finding fruitfulness there, but the problem with most men is they're not willing to go down until they find their effective level. They want to teach up at this level. Everybody wants to teach at the graduate level. Nobody wants to go down where simply loving somebody and showing them attention and showing up on time and inviting them into your home and having fellowship groups for young kids in your house. All kinds of things. There are opportunities everywhere. The Lord has unlocked those doors and they're available to you. In this city, uh, among men, 18 to 35 years old, unemployment is 30%, not five and a half like it is in this country. In this city, with our kids between 18 and 22 years of age, we have more in prison than we do in college. There are tremendous problems in this city. If you go down to the med, 75% of the births are, are, are to women who are not married to the men who are the father of those children. If you go down to Foot Claiborne Homes, 90% of those homes have a woman without a man in that home trying to lead those children. We have tremendous... Every time you find a problem, it's an opportunity, guys. Every time there's a problem of brokenness, it's an opportunity for the gospel to be communicated to someone who needs it. Because the answer for every one of those problems is Jesus Christ. And I, I know I sound like a broken record. Maybe I told you all this the other day. But you know the little story of the kid... Who it was in an old children's lesson, and the teacher said, now what's gray and furry and has a little tail and four legs and eats nuts? And the little kid said, well, it sounds an awful, like, awful lot like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> you know, in, in the church, you know, every, the answer to everything is Jesus, you know? And, and I know it sounds like a broken record. It may sound trite to you, but doggone it, it's true. You can take any problem, whether it's psychological health or physical health or intellectual development or spiritual development or finances or marriage or child-rearing or your workplace or managing your finances, all those areas of human existence, and the answer for every problem and every single one of them is to find the key to Him who holds the keys to death and life and to success in life and happiness. Every single one of those problems, if you get... Focus on Jesus Christ to find the answer. Therefore, gentlemen, in your workplace, in your community, in your family, where you see problems or opportunities, I'm not just giving you the silver lining of an American optimist. I'm talking about how Jesus Christ deals with your situation. And so what you see as a tremendous tragedy can be the greatest opportunity. Uh, someone that I love a lot was telling me about a problem. Uh, that they're facing in their own home with one of their own children. And it's a big problem. It's a heart-wrenching problem. But you know, as I was listening to the problem, I, I couldn't help but think, you know, this is probably the place in this kid's life when she's going to understand the meaning of the gospel more than any other time in her life. Because she's broken. And she's sinned real big. And she's gotten herself in a lot of trouble. And here is where the gospel will probably break through. It's hard to do that as a parent because we get all wired up about our kids being perfect and upholding the family name, you know what I mean, and promoting our pride. And we, we don't realize that this is where God is going to work in your kids' lives. So you, are there doors to, op, uh, to opportunities for ministry? Are you kidding me? Well, look at the sin and the brokenness around you. Those are all doors of opportunity. Look at our world. Do you realize that 1.2 billion people in this world live on less than a dollar a day? There are 30,000 children a day who are dying of preventable diseases. 
that we easily prevent and treat in this country. They don't die in this country, but in other countries, 30,000 a day. Think of the opportunities for medical care around this world. Think of the opportunities for economic development in countries like Cambodia and Mozambique and Haiti and India and many, many other places. The world is full of opportunities to serve the world. We have 20% of this world who doesn't have potable water. That's an enormous problem. So you look at Africa and you have 10 million orphans from AIDS. 10 million orphans. They line the gutters in the cities of Africa. This is a huge problem and a great opportunity. Unless you're selfish and you're going to close off your life, put up your wall, lock your gate, and shut the world out. And when you do that, you're shutting out Christ because He is at work among the poor, among those who are lost. We have 2 billion people who are professing Christ. We have 4 billion people who are not. And 1.2 billion of those are Muslims. And 80% of them have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 80% of 1.2 billion is a little less than a billion people who are Muslim have never heard the gospel. Now, I know when they hear it, most of them will not accept it, but some of them will. But it seems to me that the door is open if you're willing to die. The Sadlows, Ron and Sarah Sadlow, have just sent their daughter and her new husband into the Muslim world. You know, it's very tempting to think when you leave them in the Muslim world. You know, I, I don't think I know any Muslims that are worth my, my daughter's life. Think again. That's a door to opportunity. There's no higher privilege than to lay down your life seeking to serve Christ where He has opened the door. And Ron and Sarah and anybody else here who's ever sent one of their young ones in a mission like that know the price and know the struggle and know how we have to be reminded that He's holding the keys and He opens the doors. It's our obligation to go where He opens. Well, secondly, Christ knows when you enter life. That is, when you go through the door. He knows it. He delights in it. Look at verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So first of all, He knows that you've come through by your deeds. You want to say, how does the Lord know that I came through and entered life? Well, of course, He knows your heart. But here He's also saying, I know your deeds. Why? Because your deeds are connected to your heart. Unfortunately, and let me say especially, in Protestant Christianity, there's this notion that it's sufficient for me simply to agree to certain doctrinal assertions in a confession of faith. You know, you must believe these things. Here is what the Bible says about the devil. He believes those things. Do you realize that if the Westminster Confession of Faith is correct, if the 39 Articles are correct, if the Baptist faith message is correct, the devil believes every word of it. And a whole lot more. He's a far better theologian than any of us. He knows more facts than we know. And he actually believes more of it is true than we believe. But he doesn't obey any of it. And he doesn't trust the one about whom it is true. 
He knows it's true, but he doesn't trust it. So the difference between one who is going to go into eternal life and one who doesn't is one who trusts in whom he knows. So you know all these true things about him, then you trust him. Then what happens when you trust him? You start following him, just like your daddy. If your daddy says, come on, son, you trust him. You take his hand and you go. And it's the same way with God. He says, come on, let's go. I'm holy and true. You come on and go. You trust him. You don't understand everything about the future. You don't know where this is leading, but you know him. And then you do the deeds. And Jesus is saying, look, I see your deeds. And it's very obvious that you trust me because you're doing things that are a little bit scary, things that are countercultural, things that only brave people would do. Why are you doing it? Because you trust him. So you see, you, you are seen by your deeds. And gentlemen, there's no way you can follow Christ only in your head or only in your heart. No way. That's the reason Jesus, when He went to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, He didn't say, believe my doctrine. Affirm the confession of faith. Hold these truths to be self-evident. He said, follow me. There's the deed. Get up and follow Him. And when you follow Him and you see Him healing and treating people and loving the poor and proclaiming the Gospel and bringing good to those around Him, now you get the picture. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So get up off our dust and let's get at it. Because that's how He sees us. And He cares about our deeds. Because they do reflect our hearts. They do reflect whether we trust Him or not. Here's the biggest evidence as to whether you trust Him. Are you doing what He does or not? Are you about your Father's business? Or are you about your own business? That's the clear distinction. So He sees our deeds in spite of our weakness. You think you're weak? Let me tell you something. Jesus thinks you're weaker. (laughs) You think you don't have any moral strength? Well, He knows better than you do. You have less than you thought you had. You think that you're just about to wither in front of all the opposition you're facing and that you have these internal struggles that are just... He knows more junk about you than you've ever gotten in touch with. It'd scare you to death if you knew what Jesus knows. He says, I know you're weak. But He says, that's what delights me so much. (laughs) is in the midst of your weakness, only part of which you know about, you are doing the deeds of the gospel, the deeds of the kingdom. So he knows that we're weak, but he gives us strength. And it's against all opposition. So he says, you kept my word and am not denied by name, regardless of the opposition. And guys, I know you're facing opposition. You can't be walking with Jesus without facing opposition. And sometimes we just get mad at people who are opposing us. I'm telling you, it's always been that way. You see it here, who was opposing them. Obviously, the pagan world opposed them all the time. We saw why this was with the trade guilds, how it affected their businesses, their associations, their networking. The Christians were generally poor because their profession and their their deeds and their worship got them into a lot of trouble. We also see here that the synagogue was opposing them. The Jewish people were opposing them. Why? Because, as you know, The apostles always went first to the synagogue, to the covenant people, to give them the opportunity to hear about Christ first. And then when they were rejected from the synagogue, then they went into the the lecture hall, the pagan lecture hall. But they would always go to the synagogue first. And, for example, if Jesus were coming to Memphis and visiting Memphis with great blessing and revival, where would the Spirit go first? It would go to the churches. And the churches would hear the gospel. And many of the churches would say, Get out of here. don't want that right-wing stuff in my church. 
that fundamentalist, narrow-minded, hate-mongering gospel that you've got that says that Jesus is the only way. I don't want that in my church. And many churches would say that. And drive the gospel out. Fine. We'll, we'll start with the churches. We'll give the churches the first chance. When they drive the gospel out, then we'll go out to the streets. And we'll go out to the public halls. And we'll proclaim the message. But we go to the church first. And that's what the apostles always did. They went to the synagogue first. Now notice what he calls the synagogue here. A synagogue of Satan. Satan means to oppose. So the spirit of opposition comes even into the church. And what happens when you reject Messiah, when you reject Him as the one who holds the keys to life and death, you reject Him as the one who alone holds the keys to your success and your happiness, to your destiny and to your ministry, you reject Him as the unique Savior, then you become a synagogue of Satan. Yikes. That's a strong language. And we've forgotten how strong the Bible can be about apostasy and heresy that is in the church. So when we reject this message of Christ, that's what it is. And he says, look, I know you're facing all this garbage. I know that the pagans don't understand you. I know that you're being marginalized in your business. And that's the reason I appreciate your deeds so much. In your little city that seems to be insignificant to you, in your little insignificant life, it's significant because I see it against all this opposition. So Christ knows when you enter life. And then lastly, Christ keeps you in eternal life. There's a tremendous motivation here. You know, there was a, there was a man who had a, a mule and he couldn't get that dang thing to do anything. He couldn't even get that mule out of the stable. So he goes to the veterinarian and he says, i got this problem. i got this mule. I paid for him, bought, bought him two weeks ago, and I just can't even get the thing to move. What do I do? And the vet said, well, I'm going to give you two pills. There's a white pill and a red pill. Now, this white pill usually works. And I think you'll see a, a difference in that mule if you give this mule the white pill. <laughs> if, you, if that doesn't work, you give it the red pill. I guarantee you it's going to work. <laughs> that red pill is powerful. So the farmer goes back and gives his mule the white pill. As soon as that mule eats that white pill, he starts kicking and he knocks the door of his stable over and he runs to, through the barn and hits the door of the barn and drives right through it and goes right over the hill. So the farmer goes back to the veterinarian and said, man, that, that white pill is unbelievable. I, the, the little one you gave me, I gave it my mule and he just went nuts. And he told him the story how he knocked over the stable door and then ran through the barn door and ran over the hill. The veterinarian said, what in the world did you do? He said, I took the red pill. <laughs> so gentlemen, uh, the Christian life is not quite that easy. You can't take a Spiro tab or some little pill uh, for your ailments to, to get you motivated. But i tell you what will motivate you. Take a good look at verses 9 through 13. And Jesus is telling us some incredible things. He says, first of all, He will vindicate you. You know, in the Old Testament, it says that all the nations are going to come and bow before Israel. All the nations are going to acknowledge that Israel's God is the only God. That's in Isaiah chapter 60 and, and a couple of other places in Isaiah. It's kind of a refrain that this is the big hope of Israel that one day all the nations will know you it. You know, your God is the only God. But look at the language here. He says in verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. And the reason they're liars is because they do not receive their own Messiah. 
I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, the Gentiles. This is Isaiah 60 in reverse. He's saying now Israel is going to come and bow at your feet and acknowledge that the God of the Gentiles is the only God because the God of the Gentiles is the God of Israel. And so it's it's a, a play on this concept that you see. So here's what he's saying to you. There's coming a day when you Philadelphians are going to be completely vindicated by the very ones who say that you're a nut and a fruitcake right now because of your belief system. And they're going to acknowledge. They're going to, it's, think of this. It's, it's much like Philippians chapter 2. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and get the rest of it and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me tell you something. Even the devil will acknowledge with gritted teeth that Jesus Christ is Lord on the last day. Now you say, how are they going to help me today? Because he says in verse 11, I am coming soon. You know, take this. If your mother-in-law says, hey, I'd like to come see you. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to be. Sometime in the next week. When are you going to clean your house? Today. Because she might show up tomorrow. She might show up today. You don't know. Could be at the end of the week. But it might be today. And you know you better have that place clean ready. Right? You must not have a mother-in-law like I did. <laughs> no, actually, you must not have a wife who loves her mother like mine did mine. <laughs> so if, if she might be coming sometime in the next week, we're getting ready. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. I hold the keys. You're doing well. Hang on to it because you're going to be validated and I'm going to be visiting you soon. So, gentlemen, get ready for this. He's going to vindicate you. He's going to protect you, as verse 10 says. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. We don't know exactly what this is. We'll get into it later. What is the tribulation? It appears as though there's a tribulation obviously going on right now. There's an intensification of the tribulation as we get toward the end of this age before the coming of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, there's a final tribulation. We don't know exactly what he has in mind here. He's just simply saying this. No matter what the tests are, I will protect you. He says this to the Philadelphians. And this Sunday is a day in which we pray for and remember the persecuted church millions of people who are being persecuted this very year because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says the same thing to them. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide life for you. Thirdly, he visits you. He says he's coming quickly. Fourthly, he keeps you. Verse 12 says, Him who overcomes, and that word overcome is a great word in Greek, Nike. N-I-K-E. <laughs> That's where the shoe name comes from. The overcomers. So, your Nikes. Those who, Nike, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. You say, I wonder where that came from when someone says, I'm a pillar in the church or she's a pillar in the church. There you have it. The Lord says, I'm going to make you a pillar. And also, Paul speaks of those who were pillars in the church. That means that you're not only in the temple, you are the temple. And you are that which holds it up. You're a constituent part of the household of God. So, Christ holds the keys. He lets you into the temple, access with the king, and he makes you a very constituent part of the temple. How can you take a pillar out? If you take a pillar out, the whole temple crashes. 
And he says, you are so important to the temple that you can't be removed from it. So he's saying to you, he will keep you. There's no way he can take you out. You're a pillar in the temple. And then he names you. And look at those names. You get the name of God put on you. You get the name of Jerusalem, the city of God, put on you. You get Christ's new name of Lord put on you. You are the Lord's people. In fact, church comes from the word kuriake, which just means belonging to the Lord. So church means belonging to the Lord. You have the Lord's name on you. You know, uh, when my dad died, you know, it's, it's just great to see in the paper. You know, here he was, you know, uh, and acknowledging what he did. And so, you know, my, my dad, that's, that's pretty good, you know. And you think, oh, I, I got his name too. That's, that's pretty good, you know. I'm glad for that. And some of you don't have that privilege, but some of you do. You were given a good name, something your daddy gave you. And you couldn't do it for yourself, but he gave you a good name. And some of you have taken that name and you've taken it on and made it even a better name so that you can give a better name onto your kids. Some of you have messed up your name. You're, you're refurbishing it. You know what? You can do that. But it's important. Your name's important. Well, get this. You get Jesus' name. <laughs> That's a pretty good reputation. <laughs> you got His name. So I'm not Wilson. I'm Christian. I've got His name. And if you think about it and delight yourself in it, you realize that's my heritage, my legacy. That's my DNA because Christ takes up residence in my heart. Everything about being connected, I'm now connected. There's not a person here who has been disowned by your family or been orphaned by the death of your parents or any other thing who's disconnected if you're in Christ. You've got a name. You've got a place. You're a pillar in the building. You can't be removed. You've got a family. You've got a mission. Everything. And then lastly, He warns you. Those who have ears, let them hear. You got an ear on your head? Use it! Listen! You know, I've been talking this morning for about 47 minutes. That's a lot of talking. What difference is it going to make? If you've got an ear on your head, use it. If you've got an eye and you can read the Bible, use it. Take what you hear and put it into practice. And let me suggest three things you ought to do as you leave here today from this, because i got three minutes to talk about it. If you're trying to think, what's the open door for me? The one who holds the key, he's opening the door to heaven. It's real simple. You trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and for your perfect record in heaven. And you give yourself to him completely. You give all that you know about yourself to all that you know about him. That's the first thing. Second thing is, you begin to ask yourself, how can I engage with His people? How can I come in, enter the room, enter the temple? And get engaged with your church. Begin to worship there. Begin to learn there. Begin to build friendships there. Thirdly, you need to build the mission because He opens the door to the ministry. How do you do that? Three things. Number one, study His Word like we're doing now and finding out what He wants to do with this world. What's Jesus' big idea for this world? Well, obviously, He wants to lead people to eternal life and He wants to bless them in this life. Both. He wants them to believe in the Gospel to receive eternal life and He wants them to be relieved of their brokenness through the ministry of people who believe the Gospel. Get that vision in your head for Memphis, for our country, and for the world. second thing you do is you say, how has He gifted me? What personality do I have? What time availability do I have? What resources do I have? What interests do I have? And you begin to just do an inventory on yourself. What do I get really passionate about? And thirdly, 
You look at your immediate environment and say, what are the biggest needs here about which I can do something? Those three things. Your, the, the revealed Word of God, yourself, and your environment. You put those three things together and then pray like crazy. Lord Jesus Christ, who holds the keys to all the doors, show me which door is open for me that you want me to go through. And he will begin to give you a vision for your ministry. And every man here ought to be doing that. If an angel stops you out there in the parking lot on the way to your car and says, what are you doing today? You ought to be able to say, this is what I'm about. I'm going to work right now, but this is what I'm about. And everyone here needs to think that through because it is Christ who holds the keys to your life and to your ministry. Be sure that you have applied to Him for those things, both your life and your ministry. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for sending us Your Son who is holy and true. And we confess this morning that we have not lived holy and truthful lives. We've fallen far short. But Lord, we take great delight that there's a second chance, a third chance, a billionth chance for every one of us because You love sinners. You love failures. You love people who are broken. You love us. And we pray this morning that we will have the confidence to come to You knowing that You love us. And then, Lord, for those here who are serving in, in little places that, where they feel as though their life is not significant or their role is not significant or their ministry is not significant, would you help my brother Philadelphians here to hear your voice saying, I know your deeds. I know your weakness. I know the opposition you face. And I'm pleased. Would you, Lord, pour out your delight and your encouragement upon every man here? And then, Lord, would you give us the confidence that we're going to be kept for all eternity, that we have nothing to fear but you alone. And we pray that fearing You, we may go into this world to make a difference and to be bold and be willing even to die for Your sake if You give us the privilege. Now, Lord, we go from this place to serve in this city and around the world. Would You please use us powerfully for the sake of the One who is holy and true and who holds the keys of David. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you, gents.